take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll begin by reading the first 33 verses. This will be our last time in 1 Corinthians for a little while, I think. We'll turn our attention to the coming of Jesus Christ as we look towards our Christmas holiday beginning next week. But one message remains in this conversation on spiritual gifts, and it's an important message. So if you're there, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's read together now. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. 
Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophecy... But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak Let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And we will stop there. I want to begin with three quotes. Not from the Bible. Won't take you long to see that. Not from the Bible. Three quotes. Short quotes. For the first one, let's play a guessing game and see who, if you could figure out who said it. Okay? Speaking in tongues is as normal to me as pass the salt. It's a secret, direct prayer language to God. Speaking in tongues is as normal to me as pass the salt. It's a secret, direct prayer language to God. Who said it? Who said it? It's a very famous person. Very popular person. Very well-known person. Katy Perry. Who grew up in a Pentecostal upbringing to a mom and dad who are both Pentecostal preachers who grew up with speaking in tongues and charismatic gifts all around her, and who has this quote on the other side of her satanic music video where she depicts the occult demon sacrifices of pagans to false gods. But for her, speaking in tongues is as normal to her as past the salt. It's a secret, direct prayer language to God. Okay. Here's another quote. Praying in tongues charges your spirit like a battery charger charges a battery. Now that is from his interpretation of Paul here. Where it says that he who uh, speaks in tongues edifies himself. Verse 4 of chapter 14. So he's saying, well, when you speak in tongues... It really charges you up spiritually like a battery charger charges a battery. That's what Paul means here. That's uh, the false prophet and heretic Kenneth Hagin 
who started the Word of Faith movement and Rima Bible College and it'll take you about 30 seconds of YouTube clips to get a good picture of who he is. One more. In the beginning, God gave Adam a language that was pure, perfect, and undefiled. This Adamic language, Adamic from Adam, now unknown, was far superior to any tongue which is presently extant. Speaking in tongues is speaking in this language from Adam, which God gave Adam. To be. Now that's not from the Bible. It's from the Book of Mormon. That's the doctrine of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young. There's some secret language God gave to Adam. We don't know it anymore. But when people speak in tongues, the reason why it's no language that anybody can understand is because it's that secret language that God gave to Adam. Pretty essential to Mormon teaching since Joseph Smith and Brigham Young used their direct relationship with God to say all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't say and teach all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't teach. Some people get real uncomfortable when we talk about speaking in tongues. I've never been all that uncomfortable talking about it. It's not that hard of a topic for me. I think the Bible tells us what it is. Um, but the world's understanding of speaking in tongues has really been framed today by a series of events that most people are unfamiliar with. Now, they're not up for dispute, these series of events. They're factual. You can read about them in Christian histories. You can read about them in Pentecostal histories. You can read about them in secular histories. You can pull up old news articles because all of it pretty much comes from the last 120 years. Which gives me an idea of how long I've been teaching about this. When I first taught about this on Wednesday night, it was the last 110 years, but now it's up to 100, 120. Maybe by the time I'm done, it will be close to 200 years ago. This is <laughs> there is a specific series of events that took place historically in recent history that has laid the framework for people's understanding of what speaking in tongues is. For Katy Perry's understanding. For Kenneth Hagin's understanding. And I think it is important that we go through those series of events so much so that we are going to this morning for the first 10 or 15 minutes go through the series of events because I don't want any of you here today to be misled to the point of doubting your salvation being led away from the faith by modern day understandings of speaking in tongues that have nothing to do with what the Bible says. Don't be fooled. People are going to hell because of false teachers who make a misunderstanding of this spiritual gift the hallmark or one of the trademarks of their teaching and doctrine. You see that in the history itself. This is not a small thing. And I know, we don't want to offend anybody. Just as people. You know, let's just live and let live. Let's just not say anything that's going to make anybody uncomfortable. I have a friend who has an experience. I've had an experience. Folks, your experience is one thing. Your friend's experience is one thing. But what is true and right and factual is an entirely different thing. 
And I'm not going to teach some version of spiritual gifts so that I don't insult your great-grandma. We need to understand why your great-grandma may have had the view that she had. Or your next-door neighbor. Or your former pastor. Or your own personal experience. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So, for the first 10 or 15 minutes here, I want to lay out to you the history of this. Because it's not well known. It should be. But it's not particularly flattering to the Pentecostal movement, and so it's not well known. The book of Acts in the Bible begins at the resurrection of Jesus, and it stretches over decades of time. It records events all through the first part of the first century. Those are, you know, roughly what we would count the year 0 AD to right up into uh, the very final years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, it was sometime during the book of Acts, while it's being recorded, that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. Most believe it was around 50 AD. That's less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is very, very early. There are only three times, three times in the Bible where we have a description of people speaking in tongues. Three times, all in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. This is the only letter of Paul, the first one he wrote, 18, somewhere around there, years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The only letter he deals with it like this. It doesn't even come up among the other churches in the later letters. The first time this appears in Acts chapter 2 is on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a Jewish festival and the day of Pentecost in Christian, you know, vernacular is the day when the Spirit of God came upon the disciples of Jesus who are gathered in the upper room in the months following the resurrection of Jesus and they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They're waiting for the helper that Jesus told them would come. And the Holy Spirit comes among them. And because it's a national festival, they go down into the city of Jerusalem. And there are Jews probably in the hundreds of thousands all throughout the city. Because it's one of the, one of the times when all of Israel was commanded to assemble in Jerusalem to worship God. So they are, all of the faithful Jewish people are assembling in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and these 120 disciples come down from the upper room and they start speaking in tongues. And the Bible describes it in Acts chapter 2 that as they spoke in languages they didn't know, people heard what they were saying in their own language. Because these were, again, Jews from all over the known world. This was when they gathered together in Jerusalem. So they are familiar with different languages and different dialects of their homeland. And now these all seeming to be a homogenous, a very similar group of 120 people are going in and out of the city and they're speaking in all of these different languages and at first people are like, I don't understand what they're saying because not everybody knows all of the languages but then they start to realize, wait, I'm hearing this in my own language. Some people say, well, they're drunk and then Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. We're not manufacturing this. It's early in the morning. We're not manufacturing this. And then Peter preaches and he preaches and he preaches and he preaches judgment. 
to the group that is listening. He tells them, this same assembled religious group just a few months ago gathered in this same city, Jerusalem, and crucified the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it says, many repent. And what must I do to be saved? And thousands are saved in the day of Pentecost. That's the first time. The second time is a brief encounter when Peter goes to Cornelius and he realizes as Cornelius and Gentile people speak in tongues that the Holy Spirit is not unique to the population of Israel. But that God's gift of the Holy Spirit would be manifest amongst all of those who by faith trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. The final is in Acts 19 with a similar encounter in Ephesus where Paul meets some disciples of John who had yet to hear of Jesus. And when they hear of Jesus, they speak in tongues. And they're baptized. And that's it. Now, I'm not saying that's the only time people spoke in tongues. That's it in the scriptures. Paul dealing with it here. 1 Corinthians 14 is the only extensive dealing with it. So there is very little in the Bible about this. And when it's described in events, it seems like it is people speaking languages. Someone understands the language. Someone realizes a miraculous thing has happened. And it's the affirmation that the Spirit of God has come to a new people. First to the Jewish believers. Then to the Gentiles. And then to those who are in this strange God-fearing group of disciples of John's in a Gentile area that had yet to hear about Jesus. And Jesus says, by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, these people are mine too. And they're baptized. That's it. Now, that is not the only place in ancient literature that we hear about speaking in tongues, though. Because throughout the history of the world, a phenomena called glossolalia... You don't have to memorize the word, but I think it'd be good for you too. A phenomenon called glossolalia has been historically invoked in the worship of pagan gods. And when we talk about speaking in tongues in that sense, in all the pagan sense, it's when a prophet or a priest or a diviner stands up and speaks in some repetitive gibberish that no human can understand. And it is assumed he's speaking to the deity that he represents. He's speaking the language of the gods. That's not a Christian idea. That's a pagan idea. The language of the gods. And here for this person to stand up and speak the language of the gods. Clearly, he's very favored among the gods. You see this today throughout the eastern religions of the world. You can still see this gibberish chanting, this trance-like swaying back and forth. The, the, the kind of out-of-body experience of people flopping around on the ground saying gibberish. This is not unique to any sort of Christian expression. This is just ancient, for thousands of years existing, pagan gibberish called, there's a term for it, glossolalia. It's not something that people are manufacturing in the sense of they're trying to trick people. It's a real religious practice whereby people work themselves up in a religious fervor 
And they get so emotionally worked up in a further that they just start saying words that are not words. And again, it's highly extolled in the pagan religions of the ancient world. In some religions still today. It's found among the Native Americans, found among Eastern cultures, found among many of the ancient groups that we would read about from the Old Testament of the Bible. Before Christ, the pagan religions believed that God spoke their own languages and if you could speak the language of the gods, you were an exalted person. Now, outside of the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians here, there are very few mentions of speaking in tongues in ancient Christian literature at all. I'll give you the ones that we know exist. Irenaeus, who was a church, an early church leader, he was in the second century, so around a hundred years after Jesus died and rose from the grave. He references the practice one time. That's what we have from him in his writings about the history of the church. And Tertullian in the first decade of the second century, so again, very short time after Christ, makes a mention of encountering the gift of interpretation one time. Where someone was speaking a language and that person knew it, but someone else was able to interpret it. For the hundred or so years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that's it. As far as ancient Christian literature. That's it. Now we have lots of writings from that period of time. Praise God, we have lots of church father writing. That's all we have of this. There are very, very few even second-hand accounts of someone hearing of someone else who claims that they have spoken in tongues. It just isn't a part of the operating church anymore. Skip forward to the 12th century, which for those of you who are counting, is a thousand years into the future. From the 2nd century to the 12th century. And we get one mention of a Christian scholar who explained that the gift of tongues is not present in his writing. We go a thousand years without any sort of... Now we have all sorts of documentation about the church. No speaking in tongues, no regular practice... And we get one mention a thousand years later in an explanation of 1 Corinthians 14 saying, look, this is not present anymore. It has been for a kind of perfunctory, everyone knows this isn't present anymore. A single man, within a hundred year period of that, a single man was identified as having gift of visions and perhaps tongues because he, he might have been speaking in Latin one time, which is a language he didn't learn. One case, one case documented in a thousand years. Think about that. In the 15th century, jump forward a few hundred years, speaking in unintelligible languages was recorded among a small group of Protestants in Morovia. That's all we got for another 300 years. Small group of Protestants are speaking in a language that nobody knows, supposedly. One small group. Okay? In the 17th century, go for it another few hundred years. Supposedly there were some French 
prophets in France who might have spoken in tongues. And there were some Quaker writings saying that there had been some people who would spoken in an unknown language. There's the documentation for that. Then things start to change and you get to the 19th century. Now for those of you who timelines get a little weird, this is the 1800s. And there might have been, although it's not certain, someone writing about a guy who happened to speak in unknown languages. That's one instance. There was another writing about a woman in England who supposedly possessed superhuman strength and who also was able to speak in gibberish. Make of that what you will. But the real heroes of speaking in tongues in the 19th century were the Mormons. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young could speak in these unknown languages and used their speaking in these languages to found the cult of the Mormon church that we know today. Now, the reason why I'm laying out these facts is because I want you to understand, and this is not in dispute, that for 1800 years after the time of Acts, speaking in tongues was just not a thing. No one claimed that it was. No one. Then toward the end of the 19th century, and this is where the history gets interesting. So this is the end of the 1800s. A guy by the name of Charles Parham, whose name I think you should write down. And you can look all of this up. A guy by the name of Charles Parham was born in Muscatine, Iowa in 1873. He was one of five sons to William and Ann Parham, and the family moved from Iowa to Kansas and raised cattle. By the way, in Kansas today, specifically around Kansas City, there is still a huge following of people who claim these massive supernatural spiritual gifts. Well, it was there from the, that's where this started. Uh, back, uh, you know, 50 years ago, there were the Kansas City prophets. Maybe not that long, Steve. Uh, but they're these guys, and then they did all these amazing supernatural things. Charles Parham is where that starts. So, Charles' mom dies when he's a boy, and his dad, William, marries um, the daughter of a Methodist missionary named Harriet, and now the household became very religious and more towards the Methodist tradition. Charles grew up and he married the daughter of a Quaker. Now, Charles, from an early age, wanted to be in ministry. He wanted to be a Bible teacher. At 15, he started to hold religious services. Not, he started to attend religious services. At 15, he started to hold them himself. No training, no ordination, no time of preparation, just this is what I want to do, so in the middle of Kansas, I'm going to start preaching and teaching my own group of people, whoever will show up. At 17, he went to a Methodist college for some training. And after three years, he decided that the education and the training was getting in the way of what he wanted to do and accomplish in ministry. So he left. Never graduated. And at age 20, he decided he didn't need this anymore and he launched out to do his own thing. He wasn't ordained obviously. That means ordained means there was no group of 
Christian men and women in his life who confirmed that he had been gifted for teaching and ministry. There was no evaluation of his character that was performed. No one went through the qualifications for being a pastor that are laid out in 1 Timothy or Titus. Things that our congregation has revisited over. No one did that for him. He just said, I'm going to make myself available for supply preaching. And even today, there are tons of churches where somebody gets sick or a church loses a pastor and they need someone to come and fill the pulpit. Isn't that right, Brother Don? Supply, people who will just come in and supply. And when you have godly, qualified men who will come in and supply and continue to preach for the, for the benefit of God's people in a church when they're in between pastors, that's a wonderful thing. But when you have an opening and a vacancy and you get someone who's not qualified and who shouldn't be in there and who feels the license and the freedom to teach whatever he wants. That is a recipe for disaster. But a lot of churches who are in that situation where they don't have a pastor also, because they don't have a pastor, lack the ability to properly evaluate whoever's showing up to preach. A lot of churches have people that are not very biblically literate themselves that know very little beyond what a basic Sunday school lesson might teach children. And Parham found a niche here. But five years later, he left supply, supply preaching and the Methodist church altogether. And here's why. He didn't like the idea of any sort of denomination having authority over anything that he taught. He wanted the freedom to preach and teach, and here's a quote, by direct inspiration. If you hear someone teaching from direct inspiration, run away. Because we teach by this. This. When I prepare a sermon, and, and well, I'm not going to go too far into this, but I don't go into my closet and pray that God gives me some new revelation or some new idea. I study the Bible. And when I read other writings. I'm reading other writings of men who have studied the Bible and I'm trying to evaluate what they say in my study versus what the Bible says. And the thinking and the application goes into what does what the Bible says mean for us? How can I teach from the Bible something that God wants to be applied to his people? But Charles Parham didn't like that. And so he went the non-denominational route. Now let me tell you something. Denominations in our day and age get a really bad rap. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention and it gets an awful rap. And I, you know, I was talking with someone about this this week trying to explain. You got to understand. Denominations have benefits and negatives. One of the Negatives is you are aligning yourself with a whole lot of other churches and you don't get to control every comment or thing that they say and do in public. <laughs> That's also one of the benefits. They don't get to control everything that you say or do either. It's a cooperative partnership for usually three things. One is foreign missions because it's tough for a church of our size and especially smaller churches to contribute to foreign missions to the gospel overseas without some kind of cooperation with other churches. Second is education. 
a denomination usually has affiliated Bible colleges or seminaries where what's being taught there has the oversight of all the churches through some mechanism so that some Bible college can't just go rogue and teach whatever they want without anybody realizing it. Education. And the third is local cooperation and kind of oversight in doctrinal agreement on things. He didn't want any of that. He'd already left a Methodist school because he didn't want, he didn't think that was going to help him. He'd rejected Methodist ordination and now he's saying, I'm going to non-denominational period. Why? Because I want to teach from direct inspiration, whatever I want to teach. No one should have given this guy an audience. He traveled to Kansas teaching his version of the holiness doctrine. Now the holiness doctrine is an idea that Christians get saved but then there is a second visitation of the Holy Spirit and that visitation of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life actually makes them perfect. No sin anymore. You can be perfect on the earth. That's not from the Bible. But he found an audience. Now, a couple years later, Parham got really sick. He and his wife both, but they recovered. And they attributed their recovery to a divine healing. So he does what naturally everyone does when they feel like God has healed them. Uh, he started the Bethel Healing Home in Kansas. Right? Because when I feel like God has healed me from sickness and I'm grateful to the Lord, I, I start a foundation where I teach healing. Not ordained, no training, no commission to do this. But he in Kansas starts a, a home where people can come to him and receive divine supernatural healing. If they come, if they support his ministry. And he began publishing a magazine for himself. Now, magazine publishing was the way of the 20th century for things to become popular and famous. Um, uh, the Jehovah's Witness magazine publishing today is the largest magazine publishing organization in the world. Now we think, you know, who orders magazines anymore? Not the case in the 20th century. He wants to be famous. He wants to be well known. He wants a huge audience. So he opens a healing house in Kansas and he starts publishing a magazine. Then he started a Bible college because of course He's a good person to teach a Bible student having rejected any sort of teaching in his own life and launched out on his own. The Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. Never graduated from college. Never ordained for ministry. Never had his qualifications evaluated. Never been a pastor. Never been proven. Character not tried. He'd rejected every source of accountability. A self-made magazine publisher and a healing heretic and he started a Bible college. You say, well, certainly no one attend. Oh, yes, they did. And they do today too. When people tell me they're going off to Bible college, I don't get excited for them. I say, which one? Do you know what you need to start a Bible college? Nothing. I can start one tomorrow. Right in my house. That's what Charles Parham did. And the first year... 40 students showed up. In the advertising literature from the magazine, he called all those who were willing to sell all their possessions and come to him for education. The Holy Spirit would be the teacher. 
Charles Parham was the only speaker, but the Holy Spirit was the one that was going to do the teaching. In the first year, he told his students that there had to be more to being baptized than just water baptism. And he worked these young kids up into a frenzy before New Year's Eve. This is 1900 to 1901. Before New Year's Eve, 1901, he worked them up into a frenzy like young people can be worked up. And he, he had them doubting their salvation entirely because they'd been baptized, but that's it. They'd only had a water baptism and there had to be more. And he had them praying for days before a, a late night New Year's Eve service. And then during a late night New Year's Eve service, January 1st, 1901, Agnes Osmond, a student, stood up and asked everybody assembled to help her pray that she would speak in tongues. And they all started to pray. And worked up in this frenzy, she spoke in something. Sounds came out that resembled a language that no one knew. Soon Charles Parham and nine of his other students also started speaking in something. It's January 1st, 1901. That's when all this started as we know it today. They thought they were speaking Chinese. Scholars evaluated, because they thought they could write in it too. And scholars told them, you're not speaking anything. This is not a language. This is certainly not Chinese. They advertised that this manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was now coming upon them would make them better equipped to go into foreign missions because they would no longer have to worry about all the redundancies of learning languages and learning things about cultures. They could just show up and do this. People would understand in their own language and be saved. They even tried it once. Didn't work. Within a year, the school had closed. Many of the 40 students went back home publicly claiming that Charles Parham was a fraud. But did that stop the movement? No, it didn't stop the movement. Parham and the students believed they were speaking a human language. That's an important piece of the puzzle. They did not claim, they did not think they were speaking some other worldly tongue. They did not think they were praying in some unknown earthly language. They thought they were speaking real languages because they understood from the Bible that that's what speaking in tongues was. Now you say, well, they didn't understand it right from the Bible. Speaking in tongues can be speaking. Well, that, that's fine if you think that, but just understand they interpreted the Bible at the time that speaking in tongues was speaking in other human languages and that's what they thought they were doing. And then once they were evaluated, and it was proven beyond reasonable doubt that they were not speaking in other human languages, then it transformed and evolved. you got to like it when people's understanding of things evolves. And now they started to say, well, we really think we're speaking in the language of God, which should sound very pagan. Because when we see God speak in the Bible... He's not hard to understand. Matter of fact, he makes it very easy for human beings to understand him. We don't see him speaking in some language and saying, oh, well, I guess you're going to need the Holy Spirit to figure it out. The whole thing was written about in newspapers. The St. Louis Dispatch did several stories on this. Parham was pretty much 
a debunked false teacher for a few years locally because the whole thing fell apart. And then he caught a break. A wealthy woman told her friends that she had been healed by Charles Parham. And he got invited to speak in kind of a series of warehouse gatherings. And the testimonies of what came out of it were that thousands of people are healed, hundreds of people are saved. And he began to develop a small following there. They started traveling around Kansas preaching their holiness doctrine that Christians could be perfect. He told his followers that they should dress really nice so that the Christian life would look attractive. Warning signs should be going off. In 1904, they built the first Pentecostal church building, the Apostolic Faith Assemblies. In 1906, he opened another Bible college, this time in Texas, and a black man named William Seymour came and joined him. He and Seymour began to go after the black communities throughout Texas. And then Seymour and a woman who was a cook, an African-American cook, got commissioned to go to Los Angeles with funds to try to take their holiness apostolic faith movement there. They went there and that led to the Azusa Street Revivals. This is all in the first 10 years of the 20th century. Now, you can read all about the Azusa Street Revivals. This is all very well documented. At the Azusa Street Revival building, there were no leaders. There was no order. People howled and screamed all hours of the night. They writhed on the floor. They spoke in Babel languages. They chanted the same phrases over and over again. Some version of this scene carried on there on the Azusa Street building for years. When Charles Parham visited, he was disgusted by what he saw. This is not what he intended. His disgust was on two levels. One, he was a racist. And two, he was disgusted by the disorder of what he saw. So he and Seymour split. Now, in 1906, Parham was disgraced and charged with sexual misconduct with a 22-year-old man. He was accused of financial irregularity and the management of his wealth. At one point, his local followers became so enraged they rioted and killed three of their own members. In 1929, the man supposedly who possessed the divine gift of healing died at age 55, as they all do. But in 1914, before his death, after his disgrace, the apostolic faith movement merged with other Pentecostal groups to form the Assemblies of God. And today they consist of 70 million people. And that growth of the Pentecostal Assemblies of God, that is what has come to define speaking in tongues today. Those are the facts. They're not up for debate. There's none of my opinion in there. Those are the facts. You look them up for yourself. You're going to sit there, shake your head, say, well, I don't think so. Go read. Just look them up. And ask yourself, is this guy and is this story the origin of a great movement of God's Holy Spirit revisiting upon Christians and blessing the world with the knowledge of the truth of who he is? I don't think so. That's my opinion. I don't think so. This is not how God works. 
He doesn't work through heretics and false teachers to set them up to put them at the pinnacle of financial gain and spiritual gain and spiritual authority over people's lives. We know how God works. The Bible tells us. We know how pastors and teachers are supposed to be evaluated. The Bible tells us. And we know how spiritual gifts are supposed to work. The Bible tells us. Now, I want to pause and I want to say, I am not trying to say that every person who has had some experience with people who believe they've spoken in tongues, whether it's a prayer language, I'm not trying to say that all of those people are liars. Okay? I want you to, to hear me on this. I grew up in this church with very well-meaning people who didn't know the backstory of speaking in tongues in America, which has come to represent speaking in tongues globally. They didn't know the backstory. And so when they would see other people supposedly speaking in tongues, they would assume this is from God and I don't know why I'm not doing it. I don't understand. And so they would even fervently work themselves up praying, please help me to do this, please help me to do this, please help me to do this. And then they would have a singular experience they'd be, and they'd feel relief. Oh, finally I speak in tongues. I feel better about my salvation now. I feel better about my faith in God now. I feel better about what's happening now. I don't think they're lying about what they've experienced. I just don't think it's from the Holy Spirit of God. At least... I'm skeptical that it's from the Holy Spirit of God. Maybe it is. I'm not the judge of it. I'm not going to say they're lying. But I know the history. And I know where what they're trying to manufacture comes from. And I know they're well-meaning. But I have real concerns about the influences that have led them to think this experience is one that they should have and authenticate as far as real Christian practice. And I feel sorry for people who doubt their salvation because they've been told they need to speak in tongues. And in good faith, they love the Lord and they can't manufacture it. And I feel sorry for people who are misled by false teachers who use things like healings and miracles and speaking in tongues to bring people under their sway and power and their manipulation. It is no coincidence that as the tele-evangelist ministries of Oral Roberts and Ken Hagen and people like them burgeoned that the supernatural looking things like speaking in tongues and healings became a main theme of them. What does Paul say? Well, let me give you a quick rundown here. Verse 1 of 14 says this, Pursue love and de desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. There are two ways to read that. 
Really only two ways. When Paul says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, you could read that and say, oh, see, the Apostle Paul wants us to speak in tongues so that we can build ourselves up. Recharge the batteries, as the heretic Kenneth Hagin would say. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think, nor do I see in the rest of Paul's writings, any command or instruction to try to use spiritual gifts to build yourself up. I don't see that. If you just look in this chapter, underline, highlight, do whatever you want. How many times he says, use spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. For building up of others. I don't think he's commending this to you for personal building up. I think he's saying that's what these people who are speaking in this gibberish are trying to do. Because it's certainly not helping anybody else. No one even understands them. When he says in verse 2 that the person who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but God. Two ways to hear that. You could say, see, Paul says that if you speak in some gibberish, God hears you and he understands you. I don't think that's what he's saying. Matter of fact, he's going to go on in the chapter to say that when he speaks in a tongue in prayer, not even the person speaking understands what he's saying. I don't think he's commending this. I think he's simply saying a fact. That in all the religions of the world, someone who stands up and speaks gibberish is not speaking to men, they're speaking to their God. When it says, no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks ministry, I don't think Paul means the Holy Spirit. I think he means in his spirit. Which, that's how he uses the word spirit later on in the chapter 2. Not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of the man, the spirit of the person. That's down in verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his own. Now, read it how you will. I'm not going to violate the scriptures. I'm not going to forbid anyone from speaking in tongues. I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to tell you what the facts are and the history of it are and the presence of speaking in tongues is and how it's misunderstood today. You practice... The spiritual gifts that God has given you as you believe God would have you practice them. And as long as they're in line with the scriptures, you won't hear boo from me. Verse 5. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now when he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, is he saying, everybody should speak in tongues? Is he saying, I wish you all stood up and spoke gibberish? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, look, the spiritual gift of tongues as described in the book of Acts was a wonderful thing from God. It appeared very sporadically. It would be great if you all did it. But what I really want is for you all to worry about the proclaiming of God's word. <laughs> because that helps people. Now, you could read that and say, well, see, I should really, I should go speak in tongues. Paul said I should, I should go speak in tongues. Okay, if, if that's what you think Paul is telling you to do here, that's fine. But you better practice it the way Paul tells you to practice it. You got to follow the guidelines he lays out if you're going to use what he says as license to do it in the first place. Now here he's going to just explain the basics. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit unless I speak to you by revelation or knowledge or prophesying or teaching? Even if I speak in tongues, it's not going to do anybody any good unless I'm saying something helpful. 
And then this whole thing about the flute and the harp, which we read earlier, it's simple. If you're using an instrument to communicate things to people, you may not hear your language coming from the instrument, but there has to be a distinct pattern associated, even with an instrument, like the army that's going to march to the flute has to know what the different sounds of the flute are supposed to mean, or else it doesn't do anybody good. I mean, it's real common sense here, folks. Look at verse 11. Therefore, if I don't know the meaning of a language, I'll be like a foreigner to the person who speaks it. Duh. <laughs> Verse 12, even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Speaking in tongues to people who can't understand them is absurd. This is dumb. It's not doing anything. Verse 13, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. <laughs> He's not forbidding it. If you say that you're having the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit manifestation of speaking in tongues, you ought to pray that you could interpret it. Or else he's going to go on to say, just be quiet in the church. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. That's what I mean. It's his spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. If I stand up and say, I'm praying in a gibberish language, he's saying, even my understanding is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying, and that's no good. I don't think he's authenticating this. I think he's saying it's dumb. You, you want to say he's authentic? That's fine. I'm not going to say, hey, don't do it, I, but I'm going to tell you what I think he's saying. I don't think he's commending it. Verse 15, what's the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit and I'll also pray with my understanding. <laughs> you know, when Jesus says, hey, go into your closet and pray like this. He doesn't go, He expects you to understand what you're praying for. In the Lord's Prayer. Paul says the same thing. So when I pray, I'll just go ahead and pray with my Spirit and my understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit and I'll sing with my understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say? Now he's already said if I speak in tongues in prayer, it doesn't do me any good because I don't even understand it. Now he's saying if I'm speaking in tongues in prayer or a song, it's clearly not doing anyone else any good either. They don't understand it either. Not only do I not understand it, the people listening don't understand. And they're going to look at you and they're going to think that you're out of your mind. Verse 17, for indeed give for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. It doesn't accomplish anything in the church. Certainly there is no place for foreign languages in a local church that doesn't understand foreign languages. I just go ahead and speak in English. If that's okay with all of you. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. Now when Paul says that, I think he means it. You got to understand. Do you know how many languages Paul encountered? <laughs> Real languages? He traveled all over the known world. 
And when he says it like this, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, that's the tone of a rebuke or a correction. In other words, you ain't doing it right. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. Be children in malice. But in understanding be mature. And then he writes, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe but to unbelievers. Again, He's saying the spiritual gift of tongues is a sign of judgment against people who have rejected Jesus Christ. And he, he says, in the Old Testament, God told Israel that one of the signs of judgment they would see against them is that people of other tongues and languages would bring glory and honor to God. <laughs> while they were in rejection of him. When I praise God in English, it's a sign of judgment to Israel that they rejected their Messiah. English is another tongue. Nobody's speaking English at the time of Jesus. The spiritual gift of tongues was a gift meant for a sign. That's what Paul says. So if you're going to use Paul's chapter to give you license to speak in tongues, then you should probably listen to what he says about speaking in tongues. We've been through the times when speaking in tongues showed up in Acts. Um, I just want to land on verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? In other words, Paul is saying that's not how a church service should look. When someone comes in, if we're declaring the Word of God... Verse 24, an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in. And here's the real power of God. Not a bunch of gibberish. Here's the real power of God. Look at verse 24. He is convinced by all the people speaking the word of God. He is convicted by all. Have you felt that? Have you heard in your life the declaration of the Word of God and felt the conviction of your sin? Of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? This is the power of this. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. Have the secrets of your heart ever been revealed? Have you stood before God and God's Word and known that your life is an open book before Him? One church service may look really exciting. But the other church service scares the unbeliever out of his mind. Not because he's afraid he's going to get kicked or bitten or... But because he stands before a holy God naked. The secrets of his heart open. And so falling down on his face... 
he will worship God and report, God is truly among you. That is a powerful thing. God knows every action of your life. Every deed will be called into account. Every false word, every bitter thought, every lustful desire, you are naked and exposed before the God of Abraham. He will call it all into judgment. And His righteousness demands that He do so. No one will get a free pass. No one will be excused because a righteous judge does not let evil go unpunished. And you are evil. I am evil. But a loving God has given us His Son who was not evil who lived a perfect life, qualifying Him to be a perfect sacrifice for all of your sin. Who went to a cross to be the spotless Lamb of God whose blood was shed upon the final sacrifice of Calvary on Golgotha. And that by the shedding of His blood, sinners might be saved. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the promise of life in him can only be yours if you offer your life by faith a living sacrifice to Him, holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable service. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. It was the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in the world today where on the Lord's Day, every week, people are saved across the planet. Let's close as we prepare to remember the work of Jesus. Oh, Father in heaven, forgive us where we have sinned. Take us and wash us and make us white as snow. Where we need it, chastise us as sons and daughters and bring us back into the faith. Help us to remember the work of your son Jesus, who never sinned, who never struck anyone, who bore no evil in his body, and who offered himself a ransom for many. Help us to honor you now with integrity. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.